listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the 27th installment of the QFC Questions for Corbett series. Usually a monthly podcast series where you send in questions and I supply some answers. Before we jump right into things, first off, let me remind you of the many, many ways that you can get your questions in for this series. Of course, priority is given to Corbett Report members who leave their questions in the comment section of this QFC episode. The link will be in the show notes for those of you watching this on YouTube. Or, of course, you can also contact me via the contact form on CorbettReport.com where you can type a message or you can record an audio uh, version of your message for me. You can also uh, tweet me at, uh, using the QFC hashtag at CorbettReport, or you can record a video message of yourself. Leave it on YouTube or Vimeo or Dailymotion or some other video hosting site and let me know it's there. And we actually do have a video message in this month for the first time in a long time. So uh, that's another great way of getting this in. And uh, I'll look at it for QFC 28. Uh, first off, let's go through the comments and questions from QFC 26 at CorbettReport.com. And if you scroll through the comment section, you'll find there was a lively discussion surrounding the question that I put forward to you, the audience, at the end of last month's or the last edition of this podcast, where I asked specifically for specific actions that people can or should be taking to, uh, if not fight the powers that shouldn't be, at least get away from their system. Lots of active discussion on that topic. I hope you'll take a look through that if you haven't yet done so. We also had Batya asking for documents proving that the European migration crisis was specifically orchestrated. And there were some responses to his question, but no smoking gun document. Uh, I, If such a smoking gun document exists, I haven't seen it, so I can't help you out with that, Batya. But if anyone else does have such a smoking gun document proving that this European migration crisis was specifically orchestrated for such and such a purpose... Love to see it. I think it certainly is a crisis that is being used for political gain, and I've written about that. For example, the consolidation of the new European Coast Guard uh, Border Protection Service that their, their, the European Commission just laid out uh, the plans for last month. That type of thing, more centralization and consolidation of control in the hands of Brussels. But the idea that there is a smoking gun document proving that this migration crisis was provoked in order to do that, I don't know of. I think it's just the logical consequence of the wars of imperial aggression we've seen in Libya and Syria and elsewhere. But again, if any of you have such a smoking gun document, I'm sure we'd all love to see it. Please uh, leave it in the comments. Uh, Jalwar uh, wrote in, to, in response to a question from last, last edition of this series asking about private email services. He recommends uh, ProtonMail or CollabNow or Collab or Zimbra if you're running your own private email server. Um, I can't vouch for any of those things. I haven't used them myself, but you can look into them. The links are there in the uh, comments of last month's edition of this series if you're interested. Uh, Myers was writing to ask me to flesh out my position on climate change, and that was left at the beginning of November 2015. Uh, In the proceeding weeks and months, I have made several videos talking more in much more depth about uh, climate change climate science and uh, climate change in general, and there will be more episodes coming out, so I hope that helps in fleshing out my position. Uh, Again, specific questions, always uh, welcomed and encouraged. And then there was uh, several comments in there in the last edition of this series talking about uh, my comments on veganism in the last edition of Questions for Corbett. 
Again, please look through that and add to the discussion. Um, but let's get to some specific questions from last month. Uh, Lundqvist11 asks if there is anything to back up claims that there are, the DHS is importing 100,000 Muslims uh, into the U.S. every year or that there are 300,000 Libyans with uh, pa American passports and money in the bank waiting for them that are about to flood into the country. Uh, there's nothing that I would hang my hat on. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, I know that there's a WND report from the middle of last year that comes up in searches on this topic. Uh, the uh, DHS caught busting, busing in illegal Somalis from Mexican border, but it's a pretty tenuous report, and it certainly doesn't definitively prove anything about a specific DHS goal to bring in 100,000 Muslims a year or anything of that sort. So there's certainly nothing definitive I've seen on that, on either of those topics. But again, if anyone has anything specific, please do let us know. Double K three two one writes, James. One of the biggest hurdles I have with libertarian philosophy, and probably it applies to anarcho-capitalism as well, is property rights. It makes no sense to me how people claim uh, ownership of natural re resources, example land, water. I've heard Tom Woods talk about having the best claim. For example, I saw it first, but that seems incredibly flimsy to me. What if someone else claims, well, I can do more productive stuff with the land that you saw first? And what if someone else says, this is holy land and I am the most religious? Who amongst us can really decide which of those arguments is best? Also, if we believe in privatization of land and water, would this also extend to privatization of air? Should the creation of such a mechanism be possible? Thank you for the very insightful question, Double K321, because... To my mind, this is the core question of anarchism and the core question which separates all of the various flavors or branches of anarchism. You have the anarcho-syndicalists and the anarcho-communists and the anarcho-capitalists and the mutualists and the voluntarists and all of these different branches and flavors have their own conception of property rights or their own answer to that question. And it should be no surprise this is one of the central questions of the political ideology of anarchism, given that one of the foundational texts of the modern era of uh, the philosophy of anarchism, Jean, uh, Pierre Joseph Proudhon's What is Property, specifically is, what is property? That is the question. So uh, that is absolutely a core issue. And I will say that there are many different answers. As I say, every different branch and flavor, not only of anarchism or libertarianism broadly, but all political ideologies have their own answer to this, even if it's not explicit or not a, a core central tenet of their philosophy. So uh, I share with you your misgivings about the idea that all classes of objects can be owned in the same way as we own a, a pen or own a chair. I think when we talk about land, water, air, I think there, there needs to be more nuance to the discussion there. And to be fair, there are, again, there's a lot of work that's gone into talking about these issues. Uh, Anarcho-capitalism, as you say, broadly talking about the Lockean tradition of homesteading as the basis for private property rights, along with uh, contracts to transfer property, of course. Uh, but that does seem unsatisfying in certain areas, like privatization of air or something of that sort. Uh, to be fair, there are people who are working on that, those types of questions. Uh, there was recently a book that was co-authored, I believe, by Walter Block specifically on the question of privatization of water. Uh, I'll include a link in the show notes so that you can find out more about that. But yes, lots of different answers to this question. And my own answer, personally, at this point, I am I, I'm undecided. I do not have a definitive answer as of yet, 
This is part of what the Well-Read Anarchist series, the podcast series that will be continuing in 2016, guys, honest, that's part of what that series is about. I think a, a core subject that we're going to turn back to again and again is what is property and what what are the ramifications of the different answers to that question. So, uh, yes, please stay tuned to the Well-Read Anarchist podcast series where we will continue our exploration through the works of Proudhon and many other anarchist philosophers talking about that question and how it can be answered. But you're right. It is a key core question, and uh, there's lots of different answers to it. I hope that whets your appetite for the answers to come. But as I say, let's move on. Let's move to the video question that we got in from Priscilla and Preston. Hi, James. This is Priscilla here. And this is Preston. And we're a couple living in the middle of New York City. We're both artists and activists in our own right. And um, first of all, we'd like to thank you for all of the work that you have done. It has been extremely inspirational and educational and life-changing in many ways. So thank you for that. Thank you for being so thorough and for sharing all of your research and your insight. And it's actually what has inspired us to record this video because we feel the need to elevate and expand our work and what we're doing and ultimately create our own alternative media source for transmitting this very same information to urban inner city youth. So, so the question we have for you is, as this new emerging alternative media resource are there any fundamentals that we should be aware of or any preliminary steps we should take to ensure our protection and ensure our safety from the various intelligence agencies and agents of the state that would rather have this information suppressed and are, as history has shown, are more than willing to go to extreme measures to ensure that this information stays suppressed? So, or do you advise against this altogether? Because we've done, um, we've found more creative means of, you know, expressing our views, but we do feel that something is missing. So, please share with us. And if you've already done something about this before, please just. Direct, direct us, us to, to it. it. And uh, <laughs> we love watching your videos. We. We consume your information at an amazing rate. So please, if there's anything you've already done on this topic, direct us to it and we'll take it from there. Okay. Thank you so much, James. Thank you for everything you've done. And we look forward to hearing back from Peace. you. Peace. Thank you so much for taking the time to make that video, guys. And thank you for the kind words. I really do appreciate them. Uh, let me take your latter question first. Should you be doing this? Obviously, that's not something I can really answer for you. It has to be a calculation of what is the best use of your time, your resources, your energy, your skills and abilities. All of that has to go into the, that decision. And ultimately, I think it's a question, are you motivated to do this? Do you want to do it? Do you think you have something to add in a way to reach out to urban youth or some other type of specific community that may or may not already be receptive to this in new ways? 
Again, that's something you'll have to answer for yourself. Maybe your artistic endeavors are enough. Maybe, maybe they're not. Maybe you want to do something different. Maybe you can do both. Again, you'll have to answer that for yourselves. But on your other question about protection from intelligence agencies, I have some bad news and some good news. The bad news being that if a motivated nation-state actor with all of the resources of an NSA or one of their alphabet soup brethren somewhere in the world really have you in their crosshairs and really want to find out information about you, they probably are going to. I mean, you can get into cloak and dagger and tour and encryption and stuff like that and trust them as far as you can throw them. But again, a motivated nation-state actor with all of those resources, with all sorts of backdoors and technologies that we don't even know about, um, good luck. That's cloak and dagger stuff. The good news being... That's almost certainly not going to be the case. Uh, unless you are, unless you have information that no one else has, you have the, the, the super goods on some dark actor or other that no one else has, and you announce it to the world and say, look, I have this secret information, but uh, I'll hold it back for now, or something along those lines, then you become very much in those crosshairs, and you have to worry about your safety. But barring that, there are now tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people getting involved in this in all sorts of different ways, podcasting and online. Of course, not every single one is in the crosshairs, so to speak, in that sense. I think the intelligence agencies like to spread misinformation and disinformation and get people scattered off in different ways. And we know that the army and other uh, organizations are employing people to sit on keyboards all day and type comments to lead people off different rabbit trails in the comment sections and get them fighting with each other. I think that's a from their perspective, a much more uh, easy and, and valuable way to try to control this alt-media phenomenon than to go after each individual alt-media producer. So it isn't all cloak and dagger. I've never had some, you know, in, intelligence agency directly threatening me or anything like that. Um, uh, but again, if you do have the goods, the secret goods on some, some dark actor with, you know, super connections... The best thing to do is make it public immediately. Do not sit on it. Do not hold it back. Do not pull a DC madam and go, I have all this information, but I'm going to keep it back for now. That's the best way to end up suicided, as we've talked about on this podcast in the past. But again, that's not a very likely scenario. Having said all of that, I should say that you should also be concerned not only from protection against the intelligence agencies, but the general public. Uh, there are genuinely crazy people in the public. There are uh, criminals. There are all sorts of bad actors in the general public as well that you have to think about. So think about that. Uh, think about protecting your own privacy, using encryption and things uh, just to protect against criminal elements as well. Um, that's something to think about. It's not all cloak and dagger intelligence agencies. It can be just the, the general public as well. All right. Uh, I hope that answers your questions. Th again, thanks for getting involved, guys. And if you do start some sort of media venture, let me know and I'll let, I'll let everyone know about it. So... Uh, Thanks again for the video. Uh, let's open up the mailbag now, go to some mail comments and questions, and we'll start with the best kind of question, a state, straightforward question with a straightforward answer. John writes, what's the word you have for government run by the worst criminals? And thank you for that, John. I think the answer you're looking for is cacistocracy. Uh, it is not my word, to be sure. It is an actual word that you can look up. It derives from the Greek kakistos, meaning the worst, roughly, and uh, kratos, meaning power, rule by the worst. Uh, it is, interestingly, an exact antonym to aristocracy. Aristocracy, aristos, meaning excellence, and then kratos, power. So aristocracy is technically rule by the best, or the, the excellent, or the, the, the most worthy. 
Make of that what you will. Cacostocracy, the opposite. Uh, and in its usage, it's been used in English since at least 1839, and it's not frequently used, but it could be applied in different ways. It could mean something like run by the most inept, or uh, rule by the worst kind. Uh, and that certainly seems to be an apt description anyway of the, the various Congress critters and psychopaths and others who have climbed the ranks of at least the pol po political puppet power that we see in the, uh, the, the observable government, not to mention the shadow government. So that's generally that word. And that word was brought to my attention by Dr. Cheerd Andringa of the University of Groningen in the Northern Netherlands. Uh, so I hope people will check out interview 1024-1024 back in the interview archives of CorbettReport.com if you haven't done so, where we have a discussion on that word and its implications. Thank you, Dr. Andringa, for bringing it to my attention. And let's move on to another question. Again, an email question, this one from Mark, who writes... I'm wondering what is better to buy for protection against the currency crash. I've been looking into buying silver bullion and wonder if buying minted silver coins like the Perth Mint Kangaroo or just silver bars are better for this purpose. Thank you for the question. It's a good question. I think it depends on your conception of what type of collapse scenario you're hedging against and also what how much you're saving in and, and what you intend to do with it. Uh, if you are looking to have something squirreled away in the case of some sort of Mad Max collapse scenario, some sort of crisis or hyperinflationary mania or something along those lines, chances are you're probably going to want coins for that purpose, assuming you're going to want to buy daily provisions and things like that. Uh, they're usually of smaller denominations than bars, and they're uh, with the, the, the mint... Uh, they're identifiable, recognizable, most people will trust them more, so they're much more liquid, especially in that sort of situation. If you have a big 10 or 32 or 100 ounce bar, it's going to be more difficult to buy a loaf of bread. So if that's what you're thinking about and looking for, then coins would probably be more up your alley. But I should stress I don't think that's the most likely way that we're going to see economic crisis occur, because that's a, I, that's a crisis that tends to disorganize and decentralize, where of course we know the ultimate aim is centralization and organization, I think the more likely scenario for some sort of currency crisis is the banking holiday and then suddenly when you finally get access to your funds again, it's, uh, yeah, you have the same amount of funds numerically, but they're worth half as much or something along those lines. And then it's a question of, will you be able to sell your uh, whatever precious metals or whatever else you have uh, hed uh, hedged against that, will you be able to sell it in an orderly fashion in that kind of market and without ever, whatever new taxes or whatever they try to slap on it and all of those kinds of considerations. It also depends how much you're saving. If you're saving a little bit for that type of daily provisions during a crisis, then again, coins would probably be easier. If you're saving a big retirement nest egg that you envision one day you're going to cash in all of it at once or large portions of it once, then it might be easier for you to buy bars and store them that way. Um, so again, it depends on what, what you're envisioning for the, the type of collapse you're hedging against and also uh, how much you're saving and what you want to do with it. Uh, let's move on to a question from Mario who writes, I remember during the Bush years, post-2001, there was a press conference where either Bush himself or his administration made an announcement that they would start using false information in the media to flush out national security leaks. Is this a distorted memory? I've been for the past two weeks trying to dig up any info, but I'm quite the investigative neophyte. 
I'm sure this seems insignificant, but for me, to come out in public and announce that you will be lying to the country seems to be a notable point. If you know anything of this, could you point me in the correct direction? Thank you for the question, Mario. Off the top of my head, I don't know of specifically the scenario you're talking about there, where there was some sort of press conference where they announced, we're going to lie to try to flush out national security leaks. I haven't heard that per se. Um, maybe it exists. And again, I hope if it does, someone can point us in that direction. But it does seem to correspond to some stories that I, I can think of. Uh, for example, the question of the video news reports and other uh, types of uh, propaganda, domestic propaganda that is technically illegal, that has been used going back to at least the Clinton administration, and of course during the Bush administration, that was technically ruled illegal by the Government Accountability Office, but which the Bush administration specifically said, oh, well, we're not going to follow it. Uh, and I did cover this uh, along with a lot of other uh, uh, pieces of this, this PSYOPs puzzle in a Boiling Frogs Post report that I did back a few years ago called uh, PSYOPs 101, uh, PSYOPs on the Home Front. Both the Bush administration and the Clinton administration before it made extensive use of video news reports, or VNRs, to influence public opinion on key issues. The reports, made to look like genuine news reports and then shopped around to news networks to be aired on the nightly news without any mention of their source, have been extensively used to tout government programs. The Clinton administration, for example, used VNRs to promote Clinton's Medicare proposals, and the Bush administration used it even more extensively to promote newly formed government agencies like the TSA and dubious government programs like No Child Left Behind. The government's own Government Accountability Office repeatedly ruled that the administration's use of these VNRs was in fact illegal domestic propaganda, but the Bush White House dismissed this finding, arguing that the use of such reports was an issue of government intent, not legal restriction. This argument was also used by the Department of Defense, which in 2003 issued an Information Operations Roadmap detailing the Rumsfeld DOD's PSYOP strategies. The document failed to cite any of the statutory provisions putting legal restraints on the department's ability to disseminate propaganda domestically, admitting that information intended for foreign audiences, including public diplomacy and PSYOP, increasingly is consumed by our domestic audience and vice versa, but arguing that the distinction between foreign and domestic audiences becomes more a question of U.S. government intent rather than information dissemination practices. The document goes on to argue that the Internet is akin to an enemy weapon system and asserts that the DOD's defense in-depth strategy should operate on the premise that the department will fight the net as it would a weapon system. In 2000, it was discovered that CNN had employed active-duty U.S. PSYOPs officers at its headquarters in Atlanta. It has since emerged that this was part of a larger program, including other news networks, that embedded PSYOPs officers in various newsrooms across the country. The U.S. Army has used local television stations in the U.S. as training posts for some of its psychological operations personnel, according to Yahoo News blog The Upshot. Since at least 2001, both WRAL, a CBS affiliate in Raleigh, North Carolina, and WTOC, a CBS affiliate in Savannah, Georgia, have regularly hosted active duty soldiers from the Army's 4th Psychological Operations Group as part of the Army's Training with Industry program. 
Training with industry is designed to offer career soldiers a chance to pick up skills through internships and fellowships with private businesses. The PSYOP soldiers use WRAL and WTOC to learn broadcasting and communications expertise that they could apply in their mission, as the Army describes it, of, quote, influencing the emotions, motives, objective reasoning, and ultimately the behavior of foreign audiences. WRAL and WTOC were on a list of participants in the Army's Training with Industry program provided to the Upshot in response to a Freedom of Information Act request. And a spokeswoman with the Army's Human Resources Command confirmed that PSYOP soldiers worked at the stations. Lieutenant Colonel Stacy Bathrick said, quote, Both of these stations are very supportive of the military and think very highly of the program. Bathrick said the soldiers were never involved in news gathering. I hope you'll go and watch that full report uh, in its entirety or rewatch it if you watched it in the past, because I myself haven't watched it or thought about it for years now. And there were parts in there that I'd forgotten, like the craziness of the Pentagon PSYOPs brainwashing campaign against five senators to uh, get them to vote for, uh, for further funding of the Afghanistan war. Just craziness like that. Uh, so, yes, there is domestic propaganda that goes on and lying to the American public. Uh, in one form or another. It uh, was specifically ruled illegal by the Government Accountability Office and specifically rejected by the Bush administration back in the middle part of last decade. So I think that's along the lines of what you're talking about there, uh, Mario, uh, if not exactly the way you remember it. I'll, I'll also throw in a, an update for from a couple of years ago. People might remember the Smith-Munt Act that uh, is part of the legislation specifically prohibiting uh, domestic propaganda was repealed or reformed a couple of years ago to specifically allow government-made news to be uh, to be broadcast and, and disseminated domestically. So the VOA and Radio Free Europe and all those other propaganda government mouthpieces are now uh, specifically allowed, not illegal. So that's just a little update. Uh, let's move on to Twitter, where we got a question, a QFC hashtag question in from at SuperKongen, who writes... What's your view on Trudeau pulling fighter planes out of Syria and canceling F-35s? Uh, people might remember directly after, or actually on the election night when Trudeau was elected, I wrote an article saying, predicting that nothing would change with regards to Canadian policy in Syria and, and uh, well, nothing would change dramatic, dramatically in terms of foreign policy generally or any of the key policy issues that never change from election to election. And... Immediately, people were coming back and saying, look, he was on the phone that night to Obama saying he was going to pull out the, F, uh, the CF-18s from, uh, from uh, Syria. Guess what, guys? It was a lie. <laughs> now they're saying, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll pull them out sometime in the future. And yeah, I guess probably maybe, maybe in a year, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 100 years. Who knows? At some point, I'm sure the CF-18s will be removed. But not now. In fact, just last week, major new airstrike with Canadian uh, CF-18 participation. Uh, so yeah, that was a lie. And canceling the F-35 contract? Also a lie. We now know that. End of December, we had, uh, well, Bloomberg.com. Canada Defense Minister backs off campaign rejection of F-35 jet. Canada's new defense minister backed off a campaign trail pledge by his Liberal Party that Lockheed Martin Corp's F-35 jets would be excluded from a competition to replace the country's aging fleet of military aircraft. So again, in October, right before the election, they're saying, 
we will not purchase the F-35. Now they're saying, well, it's still in the running. We might purchase it. <laughs> so again, direct lie. And uh, yeah, maybe they'll throw the F-35 under the bus. Maybe they'll eventually decide to go with something else. I mean, I think that's a political football. They don't care so much about Lockheed Martin as they do about backscratching the Canadian contractors, Bombardier and whoever. So it, maybe they'll throw that one under the bus. But the point is, they lied. They said they will not purchase the F-35. Now they're saying, well, we might. So I, I love the fact that it was so quickly proven proven within weeks of them taking office that all of those things were lies. I'm on record saying they were lying. And hey, guess what? It's uh, it's true. They were lying. But don't worry. I'm sure the people who support hope and change, exactly like the people who supported 2008 Obama hope and change, will close down Guantanamo, will stop lobbyists in government, will we'll end executive orders, all of which, I mean, and much more proven to be lies within weeks of him taking office. But again, I mean, people who bought the hope and change bought the hope and change, and I'm sure it'll happen again and again and again and again and again in country after country around the world for generation after generation, as it has been and will continue to be until people wake up and smell the coffee. Not holding my breath on that, but... It's what we're working towards here, isn't it? Okay, uh, let's move on to the next question. An email from Jack. I'm sure you heard the news this week regarding Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg pledging to give 99% of his wealth to the newly formed Zuckerberg Initiative. Anytime I hear of a billionaire trying to fund a new initiative to promote global ideals, such as equality and human potential, I definitely get nervous, and I'm sure you understand the obvious implications involved here. I was wondering if this topic was something you had thought about, or if you think Zuckerberg may be this generation's George Soros in the making. Well, I, I'm not sure he's exactly in the Soros mold, who comes from more of a financial background, but he is in the mold of, well, I mean, from the oligarchs on down, from the Rockefellers and Carnegie's and Ford's and all of these foundation, tax-exempt foundation uh, families that found the way to preserve their wealth and to ensure that it would be used towards their political ideological purposes in perpetuity. Uh, he's just joining the club. And it's no surprise that he's part of that club. Uh, you don't hobnob with Obama and Xi Jinping and all these people and uh, be that multi-billionaire without being part of that club. So he's definitely in the club. I guess the only question is, since when was he in the club? Was it from the very beginning? Was he put in that position to start Facebook? I don't think that's the most likely. I think he probably started Facebook and the intelligence agencies saw that, saw, hey, that's a good idea. It got swooped in with their venture capital funding and billions of dollars of personal wealth later. Here he is. Um, and again, this is following directly in the mold of his heroes. On that very note, uh, our friend Brock West just tweeted, uh, about Mark Zuckerberg, isn't he just the cutest little minion? And uh, uh, pointing out his Facebook post, a recent Facebook post, uh, my ne next book for a year of books is Quantum Physics for Babies. Ha ha ha. Just kidding. It's actually World Order by Henry Kissinger about foreign relations and how we can build peaceful relationships throughout the world. This is important for creating the world we all want for our children, and that's what I'm thinking about these days cutest little minion indeed. So I think we have a very good idea of where this money for the Zuckerberg initiative is really going to end up. And it's funny, it was originally reported when this story broke, it was originally reported that this was going to be some sort of, like he was just donating it to charity or something. No, he's starting a tax-exempt foundation that he will direct. So, uh, and it will be more seen as an investment vehicle than it is 
philanthropy. So <laughs> again, it couldn't be more blatant. But on the Facebook note, I will once again throw you back to an old Boiling Frogs post eye-opener I did on the question of Facebook and its intelligence agency connections. The publicly available record on the Facebook InQtel connection is tenuous. Facebook received $12.7 million in venture capital from Excel, whose manager, James Breyer, now sits on their board. He was formerly the chairman of the National Venture Capital Association, whose board included Gilman Louie, then the CEO of InQtel. The connection is indirect, but the suggestion of CIA involvement with Facebook, however tangential, is disturbing in the light of Facebook's history of violating the privacy of its users. Another black eye for Facebook, the social networking giant has reportedly revealed the sexual orientation of some users to advertisers. Researchers discovered that targeted ads are sent to accounts of people who have described themselves as gay or straight. Now that means a person who wants to keep their private life private may be actually sharing it. And just last week, we learned some of the most popular apps on Facebook were leaking users' information to advertisers. Do you feel like it's a backlash or do you feel like you're violating people's privacy? Do you, you feel like you're adequately portrayed as a... Because they want to wonder about the person who actually created this thing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, a lot of stuff happened, happened along the way. I think, um, you know, there were real learning points and turning points along the way in terms of, um, in terms of building things. A recently released IM conversation between Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and a friend revealed the underlying attitude of Facebook towards its users. The exchange took place in 2004 when Zuckerberg had recently started the popular social networking website. In it, he told the friend, quote, Yeah, so if you ever need any info about anyone at Harvard, just ask. I have over 4,000 emails, pictures, addresses, SNS. To which the friend replied, What? How do you manage that one? And Zuckerberg responded, people just submitted it. I don't know why. They trust me. Dumb fucks. Once again, see the link in the show notes for that complete report, which, again, I think is worth visiting or revisiting if, it is, uh, if you've seen it in the past. All right, moving right along. Uh, let's go to an email from Matt. With the coming, define it how you may, internet kill switch, Google News rating, FCC 15, TPP, Sesame Credit... How can we prepare for it as media producers? I heavily rely on YouTube and my nearzerotraffic.com for the dissemination of information. Wireless mesh networks are a great idea. I have two nodes here at the farm for streaming the internet from the house to the recording studio, but I'm the only node I'm aware of for 25 miles or so. What are your thoughts on by-the-mail newsletters? How might someone like yourself get your info across the pond in a worst-case scenario? Uh, yeah, very good question, and I'm sure a lot of people have thought about this, and this is why I think there does need to be a low-tech infrastructure of sorts, as at the very least as a backup. Um, you know, we still have access to lower technology ways of disseminating information, and we should be thinking about how to make the use of those as well. Uh, obviously, at this moment in time, the internet is the easiest and, and most effective way to get your voice heard by the globe, basically, at a moment's notice. But uh, yes, we have to think about those types of backups. In fact, that is and has been for several months now been on the block to be a future edition of the Solution series of my podcast where we're going to talk about low-tech solutions. So stay tuned for that. If anyone has any other thoughts or ideas on that subject, again, I'm sure we'd all like to hear them. Please leave them in the comment section. 
Uh, let's move on to a an audio question. Uh, this one in from Handel. Good afternoon. My name is Handel Rodriguez. My question. What is the difference between voluntarism, agorism, libertarianism, and anarchism? And if they are very similar, then which one's the better conversation starter? Which one will get a conversation flowing better? Because I understand some of these labels tend to bring up barriers in, in communication. And it's all about communication, right? So I would like to address that. Thank you very much for your program. And uh, well, I don't know if you believe or not, but God bless you. Thank you for the question, Hindle. Uh Have you got a few hundred hours? <laughs> Because that's what it's going to take to really sort through this. This is the point at which I think labels can become more of a hindrance to communication than a help. And if you ask a hundred different people to define these terms, I guarantee you're going to get a hundred different definitions, maybe 200. So if you want the quick and dirty definitions, I would say anarchism is the broad umbrella term for any political ideology which has as its core tenant the belief in no rulers or no hierarchy. Even there, there's some room for different interpretations that explain some of the splits amongst people using that label. Um, libertarianism may or may not refer to the classical liberal tradition, i.e. going back through Locke and Jefferson and people like that, talking about uh, the bases for government. But then again, there are libertarian anarchists or people who proclaim both labels. Um, so it's not necessarily, it could be minarchistic in tendency, could be anarchistic. It could refer to a specific political party or movement, as it does in certain polities, uh, which may be more anarchistic or minarchistic in nature uh, through the political process. A voluntarism Maybe one of the flavors or, or one of the things that comes under that broad umbrella of anarchism, uh, which is simply a belief that all adult human interaction should be voluntary in nature. Agorism is less of, I think, of a political ideology than it is an action plan for implementing those types of anarchist ideologies. And for people who want to know more about agorism, I recently did a podcast on that. So, again, that's all very quick and dirty and it has to be elaborated on at great length to to really hone in and narrow down on some of those, what those core definitions really mean and how you differentiate yourself within that context. So again, it depends, I think, really on the context that you're using these words in, who you're talking to, your understanding of how much they they understand what you're saying and how much they might want to uh, use their own connotations to put meanings on it that you don't don't intend, and then you'll have to explain those. I don't think there's an easy way out of it. I mean, it, it, labels are only so good as they are for shorthand placeholders when we all understand what is being talked about. And there are certain contexts in which I could say, you know, I'm an anarchist, when that doesn't really say enough. It doesn't say specifically anything of detail. But when I say that, I, I trust that people I'm talking to understand all of the all of the things that that entails and how I situate myself in them. Um, but that's why I could never say that in mixed company and I just expect people to understand specifically what I'm saying. Um, so I hope that helps. <laughs> I hope that helps at least clarify what this really means when we're trying to define these labels and why they may not be as useful for 
for uh, some sort of in totalizing one word to encapsulate an entire ideology. And that's not just in the anarchist framework or these t words in particular. I mean, this is for all sorts of political ideologies or economic uh, uh, theories or things of that nature. They cannot generally be summed up or, and completely understood and encapsulated in a word. So let's, uh, let's use language for what it's for, which is communication and understand its limitations as well. Okay, let's move on to a question from Owen who writes, is there any source of live news media which is completely independent and trusted? RT equals Russian nationally owned broadcast. Press TV equals Iranian owned broadcaster. Telesur equals Venezuelan owned broadcaster. CNN, ABC, BBC, Fox equals the West propaganda networks. Everyone seems to have an agenda. How can we sift through the news to discover the truth? Hmm. Thank you for the question, Owen. Uh, is there any source of live news media which is completely independent and trusted? Uh, no. Uh, is there any source of media which is completely independent and trusted? No. Is there any source even conceivable theoretically that should be in all cases trusted? No, of course not. Of course it isn't that simple. I really wish it was, but it isn't. Uh, no source should just be taken on faith ever and you should never get into the habit of just simply trusting anything that comes from any outlet, including the Corbett Report and anything else, and anyone who tells you otherwise is lying to your face. So I wish it were easier, but it isn't. It, it's always a question of what you are trying to get uh, out of this and, and what you... Uh, how do I explain this? Well, okay, how about for something like a fact, a factual thing, a, a politician made this factual statement about this event or something along those lines. That is very often, not always, but very often you can get those types of facts, verifiable, independently verifiable facts from all sorts of sources, including those sources you mentioned and, and elsewhere. Uh, mainstream corporate propaganda networks still do report facts that are verifiable facts about things that really happened in the real world. And if you're just interested in those facts, then yes, you can get that information from a multitude of sources. And usually you can verify them by triangulating from different places, or you can go back to source documents or things of that to, to verify those facts. But it's always a question of the spin that is placed on those facts, the context in which it's situated, which can put a different spin on it. And there is no such thing as a truly, completely objective, floating from the heavens, observing it all as some sort of, you know, godlike being point of view when it comes to media. It can't. No one, no one on the planet could do that because even choosing what to talk about and what not to talk about is in itself an editorial decision which comes with it a worldview, a perspective, a, a bias. It is inherent in everything we do, everything we're capable of doing as human beings. You will never get beyond that. So you have to rely on multiple sources. You have to verify uh, from different sources. And you have to differentiate between facts, actual independently verifiable facts about the real world, and then ideology and spin and and perspective and, and commentary and context and history that come as a part of that fact to put it into a framework that gives you a view of the world. So again, uh, New World Next Week and shows like that can, some, sometimes do use corporate media to talk about facts and to unspin the spin that they put on it to put it into a real historical framework to make it make sense for people. Um, 
and, and things of that nature. So, no, is there a independent, trusted source of news? No. You're going to have to use your own your own gumption, your own, you're going to have to put some work into it. And I wish there was an easy way to turn your mind off and just get truth, but it doesn't work that way. Um, it is an effort. And the, to the extent that you make that effort, you get out what you put in, I think. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Jens, Jens writes, I don't mind when friends and family have a different opinion than I do regarding subjects like global warming, Syria, etc. That's their choice on their path. However, when they refer to rational wiki, I'm saddened as they are loving and intelligent people. If you could do a program on debunking this organization, it would be much appreciated. Uh, well, let me say something surprising. Uh, I find that there is value to sites like this. And for people who have never visited Rational Wiki, it's a site that tends to talk about some of the alternative media type subjects, um, but almost, uh, I think universally from what I've seen, to poo-poo them and usually in a very dismissive manner. Um, but lump that in with all sorts of sites that we could talk about, 911myths.com or uh, Snopes or th those types of sites that generally, oh, this is conspiracy theory and it's bunk. Those types of debunking sites uh, can be extremely useful, can be extremely useful. For example, Rational Wiki has an entry on cacistocracy from which uh, that entry is where I learned about the first usage of it in English language in 1839, which links to a Huffington Post article that, by someone talking about that usage and, and uh, its context. So th there are sometimes real information, again, just as we're talking about there, uh, just as there's no completely independent and trusted uh, media, I don't think there's any completely 100% propaganda lie media. I mean, yes, <laughs> I suppose there could be, but it wouldn't be very effective. There's always little bits of truth here and there. So that's valuable. And also, I think when we're talking about complex subjects like 9-11 or whatever, I think it's good to know what the other arguments are. People have put forward rational arguments of sorts against this or that piece of information that we might cite unthinkingly as, oh, this is definitive proof of X, Y, or Z. Well, it's good to know there are other people out there who have their own counter-arguments. It's good to know those counter-arguments at the very least so you can make your arguments stronger. And I do that all the time with all sorts of things. Uh, I've, I've done that over the years and, and even changed my perspective on things like the 9-11 missing trillions. I used to just say it was on September 10th that it was suddenly revealed to the world. No, it had been talked about. It was in a fiscal year 1999 DOD, uh, DOD uh, Inspector General report. Um, and it had been talked about all throughout 2001. It wasn't just on September 10th, 2001. And that was something that, uh, that my understanding was expanded by looking at some of these 9-11 debunking sites. And, and they're right. I don't think it changes the fundamental assessment, but they're right about that. So why continue to promote things that are untrue? So there is value to things like that. Now, if people only respond to your argument by saying, look, Rational wiki. I mean, then then you can talk to them about the things that are raised in there, or you can get them to elaborate. Because if they're just using that as a placeholder, I don't have to research this because this. Then, well, either they're not going to engage you in conversation, and probably not worth engaging in conversation, and that's on that subject anyway. Or it's a it's a way into a conversation where you can get into more depth, and maybe even expand your own view, change your own view. Maybe there's other facts out there that you didn't know about. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't throw babies out with bathwaters. There's sometimes good information, even in sites that, uh, that 
disagree with you more often than they agree, or all the time, as the case may be. Okay, uh, speaking of media sources and things of that nature, let's go to a question from Bob. Hi, James. It's Bob Fergus. Um, I'm a bit concerned about events here in Australia and would like to know what we should be looking for and perhaps other uh, networks within our region that we can um, contact to keep a pace of what's going on. Thanks. Well, good day, mate, and thank you for the question. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not Australian, and I don't have my ear to the ground in Australia, but fortunately, as I'm sure you all know, I not only have my partner at the Asia Pacific Perspective video series, uh, Brock West of APPerspective.net, to help me answer such questions, but he is also, as I hope you know at the, by this point, also now doing the video editing for almost all of the Corbett Report videos, including this video, if you're watching it on YouTube. So I'll throw it over to Brock. Brock, what do you say? G'day, Bob. Thanks for your question, mate. I'm just going to run down a quick little list I've compiled here of a few, of a few uh, websites that I use and visit quite frequently for my work and research uh, for APPerspective.net. Um, I think you'll find that most of these cover a wide range of topics, not always related to Australia, but there is quite a bit of Australian news for you to sink your teeth into. Uh, the first one is Fair Dinkum Radio at fairdinkumradio.com. This is a website run and hosted by Leon Pittard, who I actually was doing a little video series with a few years ago called Asia Pacific Insight. Really great website with a lot of uh, important topics. And also he does like, he's quite food and health uh, orientated as well, which is really good. Uh, the next one is the Australian Independent Media Network at theaimn.com. Uh, this is mostly a political site, an Australian political site, so if, if that if that's something you're interested in. Uh, next is Real News Australia at realnewsaustralia.com. This is hosted by Lee Maddox, and I would recommend if you're on Twitter, following uh, following Lee at Real News on Twitter. Um, he's quite the prolific tweeter, and he really does uh, post a lot of good stuff on there. Uh, next is a really is one I can really recommend uh, is Truth News Australia at truthnews.com.au. Uh, this is hosted by Harrowood Fenton, um, and he gets you know guests on like John Pilger and the like, and other really important guests covering a lot of topics, including vaccinations and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Cansnews.org is also a good one. It's not necessarily just about North Queensland news. Um, they they tend to have a more worldly uh, influence on their website. Um, and finally, just uh, I want to bring attention to the Australian Roundtable podcast, uh, which is at ausroundtable.com. This is an affiliation of tottnews.com, which is run by Ethan Nash, um, a, a fellow blogger and uh, independent media personality based in Brisbane there. Um, they've, the, the, the Roundtable podcast has just gone on hiatus, but they've got 50 episodes that they recorded this year. So plenty of, uh, plenty of news and information and current affairs for you to sink your teeth into. All right, that's all I've got for now, mate. Take care. All the best. And although Brock is too bashful to plug it too much himself, of course you can find his work at apperspective.net about news and information all throughout the Asia-Pacific region from an Australian perspective. So I hope that is enough to get you going. Uh, from Australia to Japan, I had Tim write in recently to talk about Japan's my number ID system. And for people who don't know about this, I suggest you look it up. I'll sh throw some links in the show notes to talk about this Orwellian system that they're going to start instituting here, a government supplied number, which will 
eventually be tied to, well, tied to purchases that are made so that you can then claim back tax uh, taxes and things from the government. Yay, isn't it great? Uh, Tim writes, so the government is going to track all purchases and then offer refunds for those items it deems qualifies for a reduced tax rate. What part of this shouldn't we be concerned about? And the answer is, you should be concerned about this. Obviously, this is a next step. It's uh, uh, There are versions of this type of thing that have been proposed in various places around the world and implemented in certain respects, but I think this is pretty far out there in terms of what any major developed economy I've seen so far has implemented. So, uh, hey, we're going to be on the front lines here in Japan. It'll be interesting to see how this is unfolding. Uh, it's not from what I understand, mandatory, you will have this number assigned, but you don't have to use it, and you don't have to even claim that you can get a card with the, associated with the system, but it's not mandatory yet. Um, but it's certainly a step along that path, and it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be nightmarish. I will devote more uh, coverage to this, obviously, as it continues to unfold, as we start to see how it actually takes shape. Um, personally, I, I think they said they were going to be emailing or mailing out uh, the numbers themselves to every person who's registered uh, in the country uh, last year, but I haven't received any such mail myself yet, so I don't know. I'll let you know, and we'll, there, there will definitely be some more coverage about this as it continues to unfold. Finally today, uh, we'll turn to a question from Paul. I'm sure your hands are full with the completely mind-boggling amount of work you produce. If I may ask you two quick questions, what is a typical day of production for the Corbett Report, and how exactly do you stay so productive? <laughs> and the only answer I can answer uh, give to that is, ha-ha-ha, <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, yes. I have worked myself to the bone uh, for years and years and years and years and years to produce an incredible amount of stuff. For one guy doing all this work, it is an incredible amount of work, and it has been done at the expense of a lot of other things um, that, uh, that would equate to an outside social life. I've done a lot of this work instead, so... I have tried in recent years, especially since my son came along, to try to curtail some of that to achieve more of a work-life balance. I'm going to make even more of an effort this year to achieve more of a work-life balance and maybe, maybe try to implement something more like a regular 9-to-5 kind of schedule. Uh, as it is, I tend to have my most productive work time uh, between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m., and then go to sleep for a few hours, wake up with my son, get him ready for the day, put in a few more hours, take a nap, put in a few more hours, then dinner time and spend time with the family. That's It's been a very crazy lifestyle like that for a long time, and it's, uh, that's not a happy way to live for any long period of time. I do it to myself. I'm not I mean, there's no one to blame for this, but uh, I'm definitely going to try to curtail that. So if you want to emulate me, uh, sleep as little as possible and sleep at odd times and uh, work at odd times. But <laughs> I'm not necessarily recommending that. And uh, maybe I've been too hard on myself to try to put out stuff every single day as much as I possibly can. So in the new year, I am going to try to ease off a little. And as a result, uh, the first thing I should note is next week, uh, if you're watching this as it is released, uh, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm going to be 
out with my family on our annual New Year's trip. We usually take an overnight trip to a hot spring. This year, we're going to the sunny climes of Okinawa, so that will be nice. And I am officially an old man because I am looking forward to getting out of this mildly cold weather we're having here in Japan and into some tropical climes. So <laughs> I can't take any form of cold anymore. Um, and... Uh, also, you will have noticed that in the incredible amount of work that myself and Brock were putting into the Oligarchy uh, video last month, that uh, meant that the preemption of the QFC and uh, uh, Film Literature in the New World Order and Well-Read Anarchist and all of my other endeavors, all of those will be coming back online starting with this QFC. There will be a Film Literature New World Order on the Manchurian Candidate later this month, so either read the book or watch the movie, the original, not the remake, uh, in preparation for that, and we will get Well-Read Anarchist back uh, and hopefully on a more regular basis this year, so th there will be more work coming, but I'm not going to beat myself up to maintain arbitrary deadlines that I make for myself, and I'm going to try to work more reason reasonable hours in the future. Might mean less, uh, slightly less output, but hopefully uh, I maintain my sanity and <laughs> the work does not decline in quality, which I think are the most important parts. All right, thank you all for your questions. Again, many more questions came in. No time to answer them all. I try to answer as much as I can. If you think your question was important, try sending it in again or send in other questions. Uh, again, many ways to do that. I thank you all for your support, without which none of this work is possible. Talk to you again soon.